0: He is risen. He is risen Amen, and that's a great, a great thing to hear you say, and I hope that you believe it, and I hope that you're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ as we celebrate today, the empty tomb, and so I trust that uh, you're prepared and that your hearts are uh, in tune with being able to worship, that you're not being distracted by a lot of other things today, and that you've. Um, come here to lift up your hearts and your voice, which is evidence the, the sound uh, of your singing is, is, quite, is quite good. And I want to thank uh, Mike and others who worked on the uh, choir. That was really quite wonderful to have. It's been a long time since we've had a choir here at Community Bible Church, and it was, uh, it was nice. And thank you for taking the time out of your schedules to participate in it. And thank you, Mike, for the hard work that you put into it. It's, it's much appreciated. And of course, I have to take a moment and just stand here and look at my grandson. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's his first day in church. <laughs> How wonderful is that? And so it's, uh, it's great that uh, the first uh, sermon he'll hear is from his grandpa. Uh, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. How good is that, right? Well, I am glad that you're here today, and I'm glad that you're uh, here to worship with us. Our reading this morning is going to be from Luke uh, chapter 23, and my text for my sermon today is from Luke chapter 24. And so we're going to begin reading in Luke chapter 23 at verse 33, and we'll read to uh, verse 9 in chapter 24. Of course, this is an important occasion for the church. This is the day that. We have set aside, at least as a nation and as a people, to reflect upon the wonders of the empty tomb. Of course, we believe, as the redeemed of God, that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and we believe and rejoice in the fact that uh, it is because the tomb is empty that we have that blessed hope and the finished work of Jesus Christ. If the tomb is not empty, then we've got a lot of problems, and indeed, we would be, as Paul says, uh, the greatest fools of all. And so. I trust that um, you're resting and confident in the fact that Christ is indeed uh, not in the tomb. He is risen, as we have already noted. So, Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 33. "'When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, "'Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing.'" And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was saying, Jesus, remember me, when you come in your kingdom. That's quite a conversation to take place while you're being crucified. What what an exchange that's going on in the midst of all of this. Um, We've taken the time to look at that in the past, but it always strikes me every time uh, we read it. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I recall one time hearing that uh, someone said that When this particular thief got to heaven, he was asked, Why on earth are you here? And he said, Because the man on the middle cross said, I could come. Verse 44, It was not about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "'Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen.'" Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Well, thus concludes the reading of God's word. May it be a blessing to your souls both now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. So stand, take the black book, and turn to page 310, Resurrection Hymn, on the first verse. Children dismissed to Junior Church. Can all be seated. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Our text today is going to be from chapter 24, focusing in particular on verse 6 the emphasis being, of course, on the risen Christ and ultimately what that means for us. I trust if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ that this message will be an encouragement to you, a reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then uh, what a great occasion, what a good opportunity for you to hear this great gospel message and this great proclamation, which is at the heart, at the very core of the Christian faith. Without a risen Christ, there is no Christianity. And so it is central, and indeed, um, it is central to what must be believed, as we know from Romans 10, 9, as we'll look at momentarily. Uh, Before we get into our passage today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our blessed heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice that we are here today gathered together as the redeemed of God, assembled to lift up our voices and our hearts and worship to you as we contemplate the wonder and the majesty of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb and all that it means. We are indeed people who have been blessed beyond measure. We have been given, according to your good sovereign purpose and your gracious mercy, the greatest gift of all life in Christ who has conquered death, and because He has conquered death so shall we. Our hope is eternal. We look forward to that future. We look forward to being with You. We look forward to reigning and ruling with You forever and ever and singing praises to Your name worthy as the Lamb that was slain. We hope today, Lord, that You would convict us for perhaps disregarding the significance of the events that unfolded on that glorious resurrection morning, that You would help us to be Uh, energized and charged up with a holy vigor that is rejuvenated because of this great message from your word. And may we rely upon your word. May we believe the words that it states. May we, in faith, trust all that is told us to be true. And believing that, move forward proclaiming this wonderful message to others who are in so desperate need of this great message. Bless us, we pray, with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Keep us and preserve us for your glory and for your honor. And we praise you and rejoice today in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage in Luke is quite compelling, so let's go back and take a look here. Let's begin with verse 1. Yes? Yes? Luke 24, verse 1, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now, let's pay particular attention to the facts, because the facts matter. And Luke is a fact-intensive gospel. And indeed, we're called to believe the facts. Christianity is not a, a just a mythical kind of, of, of wishing type of religion. It's based on fact. And these facts are critically important because the facts are related to our trust and our confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. These facts are provided to us to relate to us who Jesus Christ is, why he came, what he did, the events that unfolded surrounding his life. And Luke, the physician, as doctors are wont to do, give us great, gives us great detail about these particular events. So let's pay attention to the facts. Again, verse 1, "...but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared." And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Very important. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. A fact statement. A very important fact statement. A fact statement that is central, as I said, to the Christian faith. And the balance of the passage, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man, an important designation, we're going to talk about that, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men And be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now, of course, this passage is compelling, for it contains the very essence, indeed, the whole system of Christianity, if you will. And as I noted, the whole system of Christianity rests upon the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. Why would you believe if it's not true, of course? Christianity, unlike any other religion in the world, has a risen leader, one who has conquered death, vanquished the grave, and who in turn extends the same promise to all who believe in him in faith. And so when we say he is risen, as is common on a day like today, we are making one of the boldest and most profound statements that we can make. It's a proclamation that carries with it the essence of all that we believe and hold dear. It is the heart of our hope and the core of the gospel. The text before us today containing many insights and facts about this statement. And so let's consider our passage and unpackage the significance of its meaning, its focus on the risen Christ. Now, there's something quite unique about this, what's, what's happening here. First, 1st let's consider the setting. Verse 1 tells us that we are at the site of the tomb. On Luke 24, 1 says, "...but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared." Now, it would seem to me that this is a rather odd place to make such a wonderful proclamation, isn't it? In a graveyard? At a tomb? Indeed, wouldn't you think that such an announcement would be made in the world's greatest cathedral? On the steps of the most magnificent temple that you can imagine? Indeed, why wasn't it announced in the temple? Why wasn't this message proclaimed in the temple where the veil had been torn in two from top to bottom? That would have been quite a spectacle, would it not? Wouldn't that have been a a really amazing occasion, a historical occasion, an event such as that? Christ, the crucified one, then standing in the temple, alive? But look what happens. Here we see something quite magnificent. We see that this message is going to be ultimately proclaimed, as we know from verse 6 and verse 5, the two angels, the two men who appear in a graveyard. It says in verse 6, we know this to be the case when they say to the women, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And so it's safe to assume and to reason that this location was somewhere where there would have been likely other tombs, which would have been the custom and practice of the day. And so we see here that they are at a tomb amongst Other tombs, a place of the dead, a place of decay, corruption, hopelessness, despair, separation, anguish, loss, deprivation, bondage, finality, tears, fear, and finality. This message is proclaimed in that setting, in that context. This is where they go to hear the greatest message that's ever been proclaimed by anyone. He is not here, He is risen. This was not made in a grand cathedral. It was not made from the rooftop of the temple. But it's made in a place that speaks to the condition of mankind. It speaks to the desperate condition of all people. All will face death. All must face that tomb, that grave. And all will someday have to deal with the finality of their life. And we find here this wonderful picture, this proclamation being made. Indeed, it is the hope of the gospel. The tomb is... Is empty. He is not here. He is risen. So, this would ultimately be the very best place for a death conquering message to be made. And consider the profound impact of telling this small group of living people that the man that they had buried just a short time before was no longer in the tomb. That's quite remarkable. You typically don't go to a graveyard expecting the person that was buried not to be there. That would be rather shocking and not to mention disturbing, to say the least. But this message is delivered in a place that speaks of the very condition of the world. It speaks of the condition of people's heart. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. The wages of sin is death. There is a sting to death. There is certainly a finality to it. Indeed, these women appreciated the finality of it. They went to the tomb, and they'll be rebuked for this ultimately, not anticipating to find it empty. They brought with them what? Spices. To do what? Cook? No. No, to prepare the body of Christ. Now, that's significant too, and we're going to think about that in a moment, because there is a reminder that is given to them about that which Jesus Christ had said to them. And so this is an impactful setting. We don't want to miss the context because context is always the king. This message is delivered in one of the most desperate places on the face of the planet. In a graveyard. At a tomb. No great fanfare. No ticker tape parade. No marching through the town triumphantly shaking his fist at the authorities, both religious and civil. That would have been a scene. That's how you and I would have done it. Wouldn't we? We would have demanded a parade. Indeed, we would have wanted to be on the steps of the temple. We would have been doing all of that. And so the setting for the proclamation of the gospel today even remains the same, does it not? We make the message of the risen Christ amongst the dead. We proclaim Christ to people who are dead, who need life, like those in the graveyard in our text, and there's only one who has conquered death, and there's only one, as a consequence, who can give life. So, it was both appropriate and also a dramatic setting to proclaim that new gospel message, and that's what's significant about this. On this occasion, you have a proclamation of the gospel. He is not here. He is risen. He has conquered death. He has crushed the head of Satan. Indeed, he is the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. He is the firstfruits of those who have died, 1 Corinthians 15.20. You want to make that statement, that, that proclamation occurs in the context of that setting and what an impact that has for us even today. And so the setting is significant. And sets the stage for the ongoing preaching of the message of the risen Christ in the graveyard of the dead and dying world. And we see what happens then. We see that these two men do make an ultimate proclamation. You have, in essence, a sermon being delivered that has some important points with it. There is an occasion here where these men, in verse 4, these women are perplexed. They can't find the body of Christ. Where is he? What's going on? They've forgotten everything that Christ has taught them up to that point in time. And in verse 5, it says, these two men, these two angels, say to these women, why do you seek the living one among the dead? So, secondly, we have our text revealing The very first sermon is about Christ's resurrection. The very first proclamation that is made is about the resurrected Christ. Here we find in verse 5 God's designated messengers. This is the charge of every pastor. This is the charge of every evangelist. This indeed is your charge too. If you say he is risen, then tell other people about it. Go into all the world. Make that proclamation. Tell the people that the tomb is empty and explain to them why. Why? And so we see that God prioritizes the very message of the empty tomb as it's the very first proclamation that he sends to be made. Isn't it interesting to me, to you and to me as well, that God does not provide these men with detailed instructions about where Jesus Christ can be found and what they need to do, how to establish themselves, how to form a tighter group of disciples, how to pick a leader, how to do a lot of things that you would think would be part and parcel of this type of an event. No. They proclaim the risen Christ. This isn't a TED talk. It's a sermon. And that's significant. All too often, we miss the simplicity of the gospel message. The tomb is empty. He has conquered death. My life is in Christ. I need that empty tomb. I desperately need the empty tomb. And other people need that empty tomb as well, and they need to be told why. interesting to me that God would prioritize this message. And it's interesting to me that the, the, the means by which he is choosing to do it is really different. We think about Christ's first coming and his birth, and you have heavenly hosts singing hallelujah and appearing in the heavens and myriads and myriads of voices and a massive choir, the likes of which the world has never seen. Yet here, on this occasion, A man, the son of man, conquers death. He comes out of a tomb. That's not supposed to happen. Now keep in mind that there's something significant about the passage that teases out the miracle of what has just happened, and that is in verse 7 when they say, saying that the son of man, the son of man is not in the tomb. And so the message is important, and the messengers understand that they are communicating a profound truth. They are heralding, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Isn't that good news? Why do you seek the living one? Why do you seek Christ? Why do you seek Jesus among the dead? Now, that's kind of a, it's a rebuke in a way. He's, These these two men are teasing out the idea that they have forgotten, these particular women, that they have forgotten what they had been taught, what Jesus himself had been been teaching them for so long about what was going to be coming, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In fact, it says in verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered, as he had told them repeatedly in numerous passages throughout the Gospels and his time with them, that he indeed had to be turned over into the hands of sinful men, that he had to be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. So notice the content of the sermon. Notice the point of the message. First of all, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. In verse 6, the two men say what? He, who is he? Jesus Christ. He is not here, but he has risen the immediate focus is on Jesus Christ of course and the proclamation is about Jesus Christ which is what we are again called to do and the heralds tell them two important facts first he is not here but he has risen already the heralds are calling them to believe something by faith not by sight they didn't even tell them where he was they didn't say he's not here he's in Jerusalem They didn't say, he's not here, he's over in Nazareth. He's not here, he's over in Capernaum. He's not here, he's over in Galilee. He's not here, he's with Peter, James, and John. Oh, he's not here, but he'll be here in about five minutes. Just wait. No. They say to these people, to these women, he's not here. He has risen. Really? Yeah. He's not here, he has risen. And in verse 5, they challenge them for even coming to the tomb. Isn't that interesting? In verse 5, they challenge them for even coming to the tomb rather than remembering what Christ had told them repeatedly about his death, burial, and resurrection. Ultimately, what they do is they preach Christ's words back to them. So we find that the content of the first sermon is based upon the word of Christ. These angels, these men, expected them to use their minds, not their emotions or even their senses, to guide their belief. Don't you remember what he told you? Don't you remember what he said to you? Now, I think it's significant that God did not allow them to see Christ at that point in time. There is a, there is a not a testing so much, but certainly a significant impact being made, and there's a call to believe that which they were told. All too often, you and I are looking for an experience. All too often, we want something that we can get our hands on. We want to have an experience that validates, verifies, confirms in our mind something that is true. But here, they're being called to believe what they have been told by Jesus Christ himself. That's significant. That requires faith, does it not? It requires faith. The angels expected them to use their minds, as I noted. They expected them to place their faith on the word of Christ, which is sure and certain, rather than a faith based upon an experience that's fleeting and forgettable. Indeed, would not Christ say to Thomas just a short time later from this event, Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Christ's absence from the tomb set the stage for all believers that the key instrument of salvation is faith. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, a passage that's familiar to many of us, this great hall of faith, but there's a couple of passages in here that really is important for us because as we see in this first message, this first sermon, this first gospel proclamation, there is a call to believe that which cannot be seen and is not seen. They're called to believe that He indeed is not there and that the reason He's not there is because He is risen. So two very important things. And so we see the writer of Hebrews reminding us in Hebrews chapter 11 now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what do you base those convictions on? You base them upon the sure and certain word of God. And this is what these two men were calling these women to do. Remember what Christ said to you. Remember what he told you about what was going to happen. That is more sure and certain than you even seeing him. Isn't that amazing? That's truly remarkable. And that's God's first message that he's causing these men to proclaim, that he's directing them to proclaim believe my word. Believe my word. You and I today must live in that context. We are faced with many unique challenges, are we not? We live as if the tomb is not empty. We live as if all things are lost. We despair over many things. We are consumed with so many details about so many things in life. Concerns about new world orders and digital currencies and QAnon, and all sorts of other things. What's going to happen? Are an elite group of people somewhere in the basement of some mansion in Italy going to take over the world? I don't know. But I don't care because why? The tomb is empty. That at the end of the day is where we need to be as the redeemed of God. We need to remember the Word. What has he promised? That vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. What has he promised? I will come back. I am coming back. Believe me. Believe me. In verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, we read this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Wow. But but pastor, I'm a good guy. I mean, come on, look at me. I'm a catch. Anybody would want me in their religion. No, look what it says. That simple faith, that that trust, that confident reliance. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we see that the impact already is being made that Christianity is going to be a word-based religion. Christianity is not going to be an experience-driven religion. It is going to be based upon the sure and certain and final word of God. You would think that this would be an occasion for multiple experiences, but isn't it unique that in the following verses in this text in one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture, the road to Emmaus discourse, that Christ himself still takes him back to the words. Did the prophets not say? He did not reveal himself to them, but he took them back to the word. And so we see that Christ is not there for a reason, Sometimes people may read these passages and say, wouldn't it have been pretty amazing if they had gotten there and Christ was just sitting on the rock, talking with the guards, chatting with the disciples? No. Now, he did reveal himself later to people, but he did it in a very unique and sporadic way. Not in some huge dramatics. He didn't rent out the Colosseum or the amphitheater or anything else for that matter. And so we see that Christ was not there for a reason, so that these women and all who would follow would believe in the fact of the resurrection by faith and by the Word to recall and believe His Word. And what we see is the great truth is that the significance of the resurrection is inseparable from Christ's words about His death and resurrection. We go to the Word, not an experience, to confirm our faith, for it is the Word of God that makes sense of everything. Indeed, the structure of this passage, the bewilderment, the rebuke, the instruction and the witness, is also found in Christ's encounter on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24:13 through35. and with Christ's appearance to his disciples in Jerusalem in Luke 24:36 through49, we see the very same thing again. The instruction sections in all three of those episodes in Luke consist of a call to remember God's Word as the foundation for your faith. So here the messengers use Christ's own words. They're preaching Christ's words. Isn't that amazing? At the very beginning, it's the Word of God. We see this in verse six, Part B. We see it in verses seven and eight, reminders of what had happened and what He had said. If you go to Luke 9:22, you see the same thing, Christ saying to them what was going to be happening. Matthew 16:21, Christ telling them that I'm going to be crucified and rise again. Mark, Mark chapter nine, verses 31 through 32. He does the same thing again. He tells them that I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. So the women are called to believe that Christ was risen, not because they hadn't seen him, but rather because he told them he would rise from the dead. Because he would rise from the dead. Indeed, Christ's resurrection is only understandable in conjunction with his word. Look at this remarkable statement by Christ in Luke. Turn with me to Luke. Again, if you're not already there. This is Luke chapter 16. Consider this. This is this is remarkable. Luke 16:31. Luke 16:31. But if but he said to them, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Oh, oops. And so, there is consistency. Isn't it remarkable how God works that, that that statement speaks to the reason why there is no one in the tomb and he's not there, but they're simply told he's not there and he is risen. This is about faith. We are to be, indeed to be a people of the Word, the whole book, The massive dimensions and implications of the resurrection and of Christ and his work can be embraced only through the light of scriptures, all of them. That's why we don't come unhitched from the Old Testament here at Community Bible Church. We believe in a historical redemptive narrative of scripture that points ultimately to the culmination of all things in Christ and that our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, note this about the Sermon of the Heralds. The heralds explain why he's not there. Now this is significant. They didn't say he just left. They didn't say he had an errand to run. They didn't say he needed to get to Jerusalem quick to meet with the high priest and set them straight. No, they simply tell them he has risen. He has risen. He has risen. Now this is an extraordinary statement. People don't come back to life after they've died. That's not normal. Indeed, that women going to the grave were there to prepare and to work on a dead body, not a living one. And we know that Scripture even tells us that death is permanent. It's unalterable. It's cataclysmic. But this man has risen. He has risen. A statement of fact. A proclamation of profound theology, if you will. This is a doctrinally rich sermon. There's much to this. Who has risen? Who has risen? Well, well they, don't know what it's said. they tell them, to remind them of this. Back in Luke 24 here, go back. The Son of Man. Wait, whoops, that's important. We don't want to gloss that. Jesus Christ, of course, would emphasize this too, how he spoke to you. Remember, these heralds are telling the women how he spoke to you, the latter part of verse 6, while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered. Christ cannot be our sacrifice unless he is like us. Unless he is a man, there is no name under heaven by which you can be saved except through who? The man. Who? Jesus Christ. And so it is the man who must come out of the grave. It is the man, Jesus Christ, who has been given life. It is because he is a man that you and I can have hope in the empty tomb. If he's not a man... We've got a massive problem on our hands, a gigantic problem on our hands. Remembering that it is a man who must be sacrificed in the Old Testament. It was sheep and goats and bulls and red heifers, but they weren't men. They were foreshadowing that which would come. They were an indicator of that which would be required. There must be one who is exactly like me. That must be offered. It is a man who must die for my sin. It is a man who has completed the covenant of works that must die for me. It is a man who must bear all of God's wrath to satisfy his justice. To complete the atoning work that he had ordained before the foundation of the world to save me. It had to be a man. And so it is the Son of Man that has risen from the grave. It is the Son of Man that is not there. He has secured by and through the fact that He is a man the death of death. This is important since it is because Christ was the Son of Man that you and I have hope and victory over the grave too. It is because of this that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as 1 Peter 1.3 says, a living hope, a living hope that's based upon a man who did everything that God required him to do, which is a phenomenal and remarkable thing. When you think about it, you and I can't live 33 seconds without sinning. He lived for nearly 33 years and never did. Not one single time. Not one single moment this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the Son of God. And on the cross, he could say, it is finished, and he walked out of the tomb, and that put the explanation point on it. And indeed, does not our ultimate resurrection hope rest here? Romans 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The empty tomb is a promise to us of our future, of our future resurrection, of our our glorified state in heaven with Christ. And all of that will be accomplished because... It is he who is risen, the son of man. This is significant. This sermon is profound. It is impactful. It is word saturated. It is Christ focused. Don't you love that? Wasn't three points to how to deal with your grief, your fear, your anxiety. The angels didn't even hug him for Pete's sake. <laughs> they didn't even get a gift bag. <laughs> Nothing. They got the word. They got the sure confident word of God. He is not here. He has risen. And so, the profound impact of such a statement is not to be lost upon us and we do not want to glibly say that He is risen. When we say He is risen, we are not only stating a factual reality, we are also making a profound theological statement. That is, that Christ's goal in coming to earth, according to the counsel of the triune God, was to actually save sinners. Matthew one twenty one. at the very beginning, He shall save His people from their sins. He didn't come to merely open the... Now, let's think about this for a minute. The empty tomb does not speak to possibilities, but it speaks to to a guaranteed fact. He did not come to merely open the door for us to come in if we wanted to or could. He did not come just to make a mere path that we might be saved. His death was not to purchase reconciliation with, with and pardon of his father, which we might... Not ever enjoy. No, I say, He died and He came out of the tomb to actually save us, His children, whom He loved before the foundation of the world, freeing us from ever, from all the guilt and power of sin and from God's wrath on sin. That's what He did. That's what's happening when we say He is risen. His resurrection is directly connected to my salvation, to the guarantee of it. The certainty of it. Without the empty tomb, the proclamation before the foundation of the world would be meaningless to me. Without the empty tomb, I can have no hope. Without the empty tomb, I know that I live under the consequences of the wages of sin being death. But the tomb is empty. And it's empty for me. On the sign in the front of the, in the church, it says, when, I, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. When he left the tomb, he left for me. He left for me. He conquered death for me. I am no longer under the bondage. Those things may come. I may get cancer. I may get hit by a car. I may die in some way. I may die even peacefully in my sleep. I do not know, but I know that death has no control over me. The victory is mine through Jesus Christ. Death, where is your sting? It has been conquered in Christ. The tomb is empty. You and I, all of us here, are mere pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're we're simply on our way to the kingdom to reign and rule forever with Christ. But if indeed if Christ did not accomplish that, if the tomb were not empty, he would have failed in his purpose in coming, and we are to be sure the greatest fools that have ever lived. But he did not fail. He did not fail. The tomb was and is empty. You see, friends, he is not there. He is risen. He is risen, and God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the fact that he is risen. We thank you that our hope rests in the sure and certain guarantee of the word of God. We rejoice that this message was delivered in such clarity that the first thing that we're drawn to is the fact that he is not there, and he's not there because he said he would not be there. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful opportunity to reflect upon the magnificence of the empty tomb. May we rest fully and confidently in the finished work of Jesus Christ. My prayer today is that for those who are here who do not know you, that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts and their eyes, and that you would draw them to you, that in faith that they would turn to you and believe in the resurrection of Christ and cry out, Save me, for you are certain to do it. Thank you, Lord, for our great salvation. May we be ones who treasure it infinitely beyond all things, its immeasurable value, its eternal consequence, and its profound, wonderful, loving glory. Thank you for loving us so very, very much. We praise you in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, and happy Easter.